Well, I was, I'm kind of tempted to just stay in the corner and let these guys lead us in, in praise all night. Um, that was awesome. And I think if it weren't for uh, the fact that this is, this is the word of God to us, I very well may have done it. But I'm going to just trust that uh, the Holy Spirit has a few things to say. And um, in that vein, I pray, ask that you guys would join me in prayer. Living God, we thank you for community. We thank you for orchestrating and in your grace, looking upon your creation and redeeming us and uniting us to yourself, but also uniting us to each other. When the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, the first word he says is, Our Father. And so we come before you as your children, as your family, and ask that you would uh, as you inhabit uh, us, uh, pray that just your anointing would fall, your covering would protect us, that you would grant us um, mercy to give us wisdom into your word, and we would leave here a little bit more sanctified, a little more like you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark 13, and we are going to do a little bit more more teaching than preaching tonight. Um, I think Seth will do his... All right, Seth's got the slides up. He's, he's all on that, so you can follow along up there if, uh, if we stay in line. Uh, I want to give a little context here. We are basically... This is a piece of scripture that can be pretty confusing on face value. It can be uh, difficult to understand all of what's going on. There's, uh, there's time references that kind of bounce to the present day that Jesus is having these discussions with his disciples to the future. And so um, I'm going to do my best to try to give a little bit of clarity to that and add a little application and trust that uh, I think the Holy Spirit's usually pretty good at, at teaching us how to apply things in our life. And uh, most, mostly I think our job is to just look to Jesus, look to the Word, look to God, and uh, he works out how it works out. Uh, so if uh, you've been with us through Mark, you have heard before that Mark, the author of this gospel, is having conversation with Peter, who's the eyewitness of Jesus. Uh, the first half of the book of Mark, Jesus is basically claiming to be the Messiah or the Savior uh, sent from God the Father, and he's acting like it. He's acting uh, with power and authority. He's healing people physically. He's executing authority over nature. Uh, he's executing spiritual authority, whether it be delivering the demonic uh, from people or speaking and, and preaching like no one has before. Uh, not just in principle, but basically he's pointing to himself and saying all principle comes from me. He's making claim on who he is first uh, and principle comes second. And so these are, these are things that would all point to uh, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and he's making, um, making very, very bold claims that he is in fact the Son of God. As you get further on in the book, chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, uh, 12, and we're in 13 now, uh, there's a little bit of transfer, there's a little bit of shift where Jesus is kind of, kind of meandering, making his way to Jerusalem for Passover, and now he's beginning to talk of how he plans to save the world. Uh, he's, he's beginning to talk of his crucifixion, uh, that he will die, that he will rise again. And so this is a, this is a transfer where his disciples are with him, and he's opening up more to them in, in, in this plan, but they're not getting it. 
they, they kind of hear them in moments and then they, they go on because they are beginning to taste uh, maybe what they assume is going to be uh, worldly power and authority. And, and they think Jesus is basically going to set up his kingdom on earth here. And so they're getting, they're getting kind of excited to be a part of this. Uh, and the whole while, Jesus continues to throw some curveballs uh, that basically says the, the world system that's set up, the things that the world declares as uh, beautiful and glory, he's starting to say some things that, that are opposite to that. Like if you want to be greatest, you must become least. You must become a slave to all. He's going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious authorities. Um, as he makes his way at this uh, piece of scripture, he's in Jerusalem now, and he's already had some different, different bouts with them. Uh, rides in on a donkey, uh, turns the tables over, says this is my, my father's house, it's to be a prayer for all the nations. And so there's a lot of people out to, to get Jesus at this point, um, and he's becoming more public in his, uh, I'd say, offense against the religious order. So with that context, that's where we enter Mark 13. And so tonight we're going we're gonna to read bits of scripture, and then we're going to do what we can to unpack them as we go. And so... Uh, first thing we get is Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple. So verse 1 says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see all these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So the first thing we get in this conversation, uh, just a small, quick conversation with his disciple is Jesus looks and he recognizes the glory and the beauty of, of uh, the temple, uh, but he's not impressed with that, and he makes a prophecy that, that this thing is going to come down, uh, totally annihilated. And so throughout Mark 13, we're going to bounce to different prophecies that Jesus makes that are current to this discussion. He's speaking to his disciples in Jerusalem. Uh, we call those short prophecies. They're going to happen quickly. And then we'll also show and reveal some, some long-term prophecies that he doesn't necessarily say are going to take place in the current day of the conversation. There's some time in the future. So uh, follow with me as we'll try to kind of make sense of what's what here. Uh, man wiser than myself, Mr. Evan Hayes, told me to follow the pronouns when I read through this. And so th- there's a beautiful picture there. And as you read different places where Jesus is interacting with people, you know, one of the first things we want to do is set the context. Uh, where is he? What's going on? And who's he speaking to? And here's another clue where you, you look and see the, the pronouns that he uses. Is he saying you? Is he using Judea, Jerusalem, things like that that would seem to imply present day uh, conversation situations? I'm sorry, I keep saying present day. I don't mean 2017. I mean in Jerusalem during this conversation. Uh, or is he speaking about they and them, uh, things that, that could imply current day situations or in the future. The other thing that, that we see is, um, well, here's what's going on here. This is a short-term prophecy. This is one that Jesus says, Jerusalem and the temple is going to be wiped out. He's already declared kind of the system of the temple is starting to go away because of his coming. They don't have a real good idea of what that means yet. He hasn't, he hasn't been crucified. And right now he makes a declaration that this temple is going to be wiped out. And so right around 40 years after this prophecy is when uh, Rome uh, invades Jerusalem and burns it to the ground 
and literally the temple is absolutely annihilated. So that was about 70 AD, so within 40 years of this conversation. And so as Jesus declares that, um, that's what's going on. Verse 3, the sign of the end of the age. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. First thing that I stood out to me here was they're asking a question of time, right? They want to know when these things will happen that he just declared and that he's kind of been hinting at. And he doesn't say, he doesn't answer them in a time. He brings them back and says, here's something that I want you to be concerned primarily with. There's going to be many people led astray by false prophets. He says, you be on your guard. It's a theme that will continue throughout this piece of scripture. But the thing that I get from, from this is God is primarily, he's asking me, hey, I want you to listen to what I've commanded you, what I've asked you, and I want you to lock in there. He'll go on to give us some, some other things that are going to be helpful, and we'll talk about why. But really interesting response um, considering the question that they asked. Uh, history tells us uh, predominantly an individual named Josephus is probably the most credible source and uh, quantity of uh, the history of the Israel people during this time in Jerusalem. And uh, he has cited, so that's extra biblical history, and he has cited that uh, many, many different people claim to be the Christ, claim to be the Messiah at this time, and almost all of them are, are making an ascent on Jerusalem to make this claim as the, the holy city and the capital city. And so this is also a short-term prophecy that we see fulfilled within that generation of people as we look back at history. Then in verse 7 he says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. So here we get Jesus beginning to at least answer their time question with a little bit more indication of time. Uh, but it's not real direct. And basically, the first thing he says is, well, when Christ came to earth, relatively, especially in this part of the earth, it was a, it was a relative time of peace. Uh, not that there weren't wars before, as we read through all the scripture, and uh, not that there weren't wars in other parts of the world, but relatively speaking, when, when Christ was born, there was, there was a fairly moments of peace here, uh, that were not real common. And so Jesus is seeming to claim uh, that is about to change. Things are going to ramp up a little bit here. Uh, but this is just normal wear and tear of living in a fallen world. Wars and earthquakes, those things in one sense are just normal. And we, from our perspective, look back and recognize that's absolutely the case. Uh, places in the world have always been at war. Verse 9, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before me. So this is one I believe Jesus is speaking directly to the disciples. That as they have, again, kind of begun to get excited, um, misguided, but excited about 
him coming into power and maybe what their role is. And so they've, he's continued to tell them things like, it's not going to be that way, it's not going to be that way, but they still kind of have this idea. And all of a sudden, he hits, hits them, I think, personally with this. You're going to be handed over. And it gets worse. But the beauty here is he says, you are going to be in front of kings and governors. And then I like this part. It says to bear witness before them. In one sense, he's saying you're going to be persecuted, but the gospel must and will go forth. And the gospel will continue to carry the day. So another theme that we'll start to see through all of Mark 13 is that even though there's hard times coming, and even though there's trials and tribulations that are very specific to them, but we can, we can carry that over to our lives as well, all of them have their purpose, and I will be with you, and I'm accomplishing something greater. And so in this, as he delivers tough messages, he also says, but I want you to see these things as opportunities to further the gospel. I think of, fast forward, I think of Paul standing before King Agrippa and Felix, where basically... He has the king's ear, one of the most influential people in the area, and he, he shares Jesus Christ with them. And so he's, Jesus is encouraging them to see these things as opportunity. Verse 10, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So he's already done certain things that are beginning to open up the gospel message to not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. And Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. So you remember Jesus makes it, or God, the Father, makes a covenant with Israel that I will be your God, you will be my people. And as you look through the Old Testament, um, there's, there's different promises and different covenants that allude to this is going to grow, this is going to expand. But Israel has a very special place uh, in God's covenants and in, God, in, and in the history of, of God working with people. And as Jesus comes on the scene, he's, he's beginning to break some of those walls down. Uh, last week, perhaps, we talked about the temple cleansing. And as he goes in and he's um, turning over the temple and he's, he's appalled at what's going on, uh, pretty good chance that's taking place in the outer courts where the Gentiles are. And so there's, a, there's indication there, is, along with the language that he uses as far as a prayer for all nations. And here he says the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. That he's getting ready to, as we know from our perspective, rip the veil in half and allow God allow man access to God, and now all men and women who put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is a radical change for, for these guys here. Verse 11, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. Now we're beginning to see more and more of a theme. This is language that's more common to us. New Covenant Christians, if you've been around Rimrock Church very long, uh, this, this is a little bit more familiar, where we start to see the Holy Spirit mentioned not just as something out there, but He's actually going to speak through me. He's actually going to give me words to say. And Jesus is showing them, again, in this trial, and in this persecution, I'm doing something. And in fact, you're going to begin to experience things that, that you may never have before. Now, the Holy Spirit has, has always been and has always been involved 
with work, God's work with man. Oftentimes, Old Testament, it was a descending upon, accomplishing something amazing, and, and pulling back to a certain extent. And here, we get an indication that perhaps that's going to happen now. Later, we realize Jesus is saying there's going to be something a little more to it. But as you stand, and as you face trials, and as perhaps you can't see the purposes, remember that the gospel will continue to move forward. And in such, you will be a vehicle and a vessel of the Holy Spirit to manifest God to anyone that stands before you. Verse 12, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Again, I see Jesus continuing to unpack this theme of in the midst of all of this hardship, there is hope. And we know that without hope, people stop living. All is lost. So Jesus continues to infuse them with hope and with purpose. And this is one that we certainly can carry over to ourselves, that regardless of what you're going through, just like Jesus sat here on the Mount of Olives on a hillside, and spoke very personally to his disciples, he knew what was about to take place in their life. Jesus knows what is taking place in your life. And as he communicates to them, it's all worth it. It's doing something. I'm up to something and I know what I'm doing. You think of your, your children, your young children, and when you're driving somewhere and they're trying to figure out, Dad, where are we going? Mom, why are we stopping here? When do we have to leave? And you might have all of these plans in your head. You know you got to stop by and drop a meal off to these people. You know you got to swing by and take back the red box. And then you'll get to church. Uh, in their minds, maybe you explain some of that, but they can't comprehend everything that we're trying to do. And part of the time you're just like, just trust me. I'll get you where you need to go. And in some ways, that's what God tells me. Saying, yeah, I want you to know certain things, but there's other things I don't want you to know. And in fact, because you can't understand them, you're not God. So just be quiet and trust me. Verse 14, this is where things get a little bit exciting. The abomination of desolation. Say that a few times. All right, so let's follow the pronouns, right? But when you see the abomination, abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea, there's a location, right? Flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter into his house or take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. So these things, things are getting pretty intense in this conversation. To have someone say, this is going to be hell on earth. I believe that this is a short-term prophecy. I believe that he's speaking to the disciples here. Uh, and that's, I think, why he's using you, Judea, and we get the beauty of looking back. I think he's talking about when Rome enters, and Israel's had a tough history already. Israel has had lots of persecution. But in, in this season, when Rome enters, 
they they are wiping everything out. They are burning the city down. They are killing men, women, and children. And so I think, basically, Jesus is telling him, very soon, some horror is going to take place right here where we sit. And it's going to be so bad that, essentially, you're going to have to just think about survival. Meaning, you're not going to go back and get your, your favorite cloak. You just got to get out of there. Take what you can and get out of there. So don't go back to the house. Don't, don't dilly-dally. These things are going to be bad. Verse 20, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Again, I think likely Jesus is speaking of the Jews at this time. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah he talks about saving a remnant for himself. Uh, even before uh, or after David, before Christ, he used language of for, for my servant David's sake. Other places in the Old Testament, he said for my servant, alluding to the Messiah, to Jesus's, for his sake, I'm going to save a people. And, and what I think is happening here is Jesus, God is saying, I have made a covenant with my people that they will be, I will be their God and they will be my people. And although they will endure all kinds of hardship, I will not allow all of them to be wiped out. There will be a remnant. There will be people to carry on in this covenant in a family with my God. And I think that's what he's talking about when he says, God, God cut short those days. God cut short that and said, in my sovereignty and in my full power and control over all things, I'm going to make sure not every single Jew dies. Mark 13.10, I'm sorry, let's go to verse 21. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. We already talked about the fact that the second time he discusses false prophets, false Christs rising up. And so they've already been made aware just moments earlier that this is going to happen. But I think he's saying these, these individuals are going to be very, very persuasive. These individuals are very much going to lead people astray, and they're going to be very believable. They're going to be have all kinds of charisma. They're going to be fabulous presenters. They're going to be influencers. And although God and his sovereignty is going to hold you, there's a responsibility that you have to take heed, to be on guard, to watch out. Present day, it's love righteousness, hate evil, and look out for trucks. God knows and has our days numbered, but all throughout the Bible, he tells us, use the gifts I've given you. Use your common sense. We're not going to dissect all of what our part is and what God's part is tonight, but multiple times throughout Scripture, we see the sovereignty of God work with the responsibility of man. And I believe my responsibility isn't outside of God's sovereignty or even outside of God's responsibility. I think it falls within the empowerment he has gifted me and given me. And outside of that circle of my responsibility, those are the things I need to let go. In other words, the circle of my responsibility, I believe, is obedience. And so here he's saying, here's what you're called to do. I'm going to tell you some things about times. Some of them are specific. Some of them are generalities. I want you to lock in on what I'm asking you to do. 
interesting language that he uses, uh, if possible, the elect. And I think what he's saying here is, it's not possible to lead the elect astray, but these guys are so persuasive that if it were possible, that would even happen as well. The Bible is very clear that it says God holds us. So even though he holds us, we're still, again, commanded to do what we're told. But be on guard, again, I have told you all these things beforehand. In my life, sometimes knowing what is coming, even if I don't know the details of a plan, if I know that God has a plan, it is very, very assuring in times of trouble. When there's so many unknowns out there, and it's very easy to be discouraged and to ask, what is going on? God, what do you want me to do? God, why is this happening? Satan would love to get you bogged down there. And here, I think Jesus is saying, you know, part of the reason I'm telling you what's going to happen is because then you put confidence in the fact that I know and I am in charge. I am in control. And that in and of itself does me a lot of good. Verse 24, but in those days, after that tribulation, so we can kind of deduct, possibly, he's just gotten done talking about short-term, something that's going to come right away within 40 years in Jerusalem. Then he kind of projects forward a little bit. He goes back to short-term. And so whatever he's going to say now, essentially, I think all we know is it's going to be after that time. It's going to be sometime after this tribulation that he just described in Judea taking place with these individuals on this hillside. After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. And then they, pronoun, will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So, to me, this seems like a long-term prophecy. To me, this is what, what people call the second coming of Christ. If you cross-reference this to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapters 4 and 5, this is, this is where we kind of get the idea of rapture, that we will be caught up with him. And so, in my mind, I think he's now jumping forward to that, where this can be for them and for anyone following, including us. And he gives us some examples and some, some story of what, what's going to take place. And it's pretty biblical, biblical epic things, right? Uh, the heavens are going to be shaken. Stars falling from the sky. We'll go back to that in a minute. But the lesson of the fig tree, verse 28. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In my mind, maybe others can figure this out, but this is where it gets a little bit dicey as far as who's he talking to. Uh, seems to be addressing both present audience, like, hey, if the, if the buds are coming, we know summer's here, this is happening soon, this is happening quick. But I think he could also be addressing future audience. The idea of this generation, that certainly seems short-term, right? Specific to Judea and his disciples. And we've already taught, he's already shared some of what's going to happen. 
At the same time, he says things like all of these things. What's he mean there? Is he talking about the sun and the moon? Or is he talking about uh, what he just explained to them? Uh, perhaps it's the Jewish nations will be at war. Perhaps there's distractions with false Christs and false prophets. Rome is growing in its displeasure with the nation of Israel. Increase in the persecution of Christians. He's beginning to be persecuted and he's getting ready to be killed. And I think he's saying, the way they treated me, they're going to treat you. So as you guys see all these things that I just said start to, to build, some things are going to change. The, the destruction of the temple is near. The abomination of desolation is going to come and wreak havoc on Jerusalem. But I also think it's for us. I also think he, he, he uses words throughout the, the long prophecy of the second coming and the rapture. Where he says, when you, when you see certain things that are kind of normal, war, rumors of war, I want you all to live every day as if this is coming soon. He gives us just a little bit, well, he actually gives us less time uh, in a moment. No one knows the day or the hour. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. There's the commands again. For you do not know when this time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge with his work and commands a doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, you stay awake. For you don't know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. In my mind, this is one that we can apply. Where Christ continues to say, here's what I want you to be focused on. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what you're not going to know. There's certain things that are hidden with God that you will never figure out, but the beauty is you don't need to know them if you know God. Now faith is executed. Now trust is executed. And so here's what I understand throughout all this. That Christ is coming again. That he will return. And it's going to be the most glorious day or the most dreadful day, depending on where we are at with Jesus but it's coming and it's happening. The other thing I get from this is we are called to live as if it were near. We don't know if it is or if it isn't, but what God asks us to do is you live as if it were near. So as I sit here tonight, as you sit here and you think of the God who redeemed us, Jesus who became sin on our behalf, the one who his prayers weren't answered by God one day so that our prayers were. Who took my death and took the wrath that I deserved. Who calls himself my master and calls me his slave. The one who sustains every single one of us right now. He's coming back. And so he says, Nick, I want you to live like it's, it's any minute. How would I live? Would it be different? if I was just always aware of that. Not to earn, obviously, more of his love. That's already been given. That's the whole point of the cross. But you live different when the one who's given everything is watching. It's just in a way that pleases him, in a way that is in line with who you are and what he's done for you, in a manner that's worthy of his calling.
I think we've been given a lot of authority, and I think we've been given a lot of power. The idea of Christ being inside us gives us authority and power. And Jesus says, I want you to be about that work. Yeah, there's time here and there's time there. I don't know it, you don't know it. I want you to be about the work that God has called you to be. And that's to continue to manifest myself to each other and to carry the gospel wherever you go. It's to love people. It's to praise and acknowledge God as God. That's what I want you to be about. And by the way, I want you to stay steadfast because things are going to get a little bit hairy. That we are called to persecution and we are called to suffer with Christ. But those things have purpose. You don't have to figure all of what it's out, but what you do need to know is I am working in them. I'm working in the midst of them. I don't always pull you out of them, I might, but I will bring you through them. And so in, in the heat of those times, when you're even being offered up as sacrifice, he says some of you will die. He says in those moments, this is where the beauty of, of eternity sets in. This is where the beauty of kingdom sets in. Right now we live in this age bound in this world. It's a time of tension. My flesh and my spirit are waging war. My body doesn't always function well. We're horrible to each other at times. And God gives us, keeps giving us this glimpse of endure, stay the course, stand firm, and you will be saved. There's more coming. And the more is good. This is practice. This is preseason. It's important and it matters, but the real game starts later. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that um, in your grace and in your sovereignty and your, in your power, that you are greater than our weaknesses, that you overcome the things that uh, either we abuse or misunderstand or don't make a priority in our life, God. And so I just praise you right now for your grace. And I praise you that uh, in all this, some things that are hard to understand, some things that are confusing, uh, they're not confusing to you. And so a lot of me says, let's just, again, abide. Let's just stay connected to, to Jesus uh, and, and know what we know and obey that. And the things that we don't know, we will uh, not worry as much about. We will spur each other on. We will seek them out the best that we can. Uh, but at the end of the day, that you're our God. And uh, because of your sacrifice, we're now your children and we're your servants to be used by the living God. You've prepared work for each of us to do. So I pray that we would be about our Father's business. It's in your precious name. Amen.